Our text this morning is the last section of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Corinthian Christians. So now hear God's holy word. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the Spirit of God, or the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, thank you for preserving the text of Paul's letters to the churches. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you have carried them safely through the ages and have delivered them to us so that now we can read. And now by the same Holy Spirit that preserved these words, uh, we rely on to help us to understand them, to receive them, and most importantly, to obey them. Give us the mind of Christ, as, as Paul gives us uh, this instruction here today. Help us to see the world as you see it, to love the things that you love, to hate the things that you hate, to think your thoughts after you, to live in accordance with those thoughts. Father, give us this grace. Help me to articulate these things clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The best things in life are acquired tastes. Black coffee, aged cheese, red wine, good tobacco, dark chocolate, stout beer, hot peppers, they're all acquired tastes and they're all the best things in life. These are not things that you enjoy immediately the first time you try them. Remember the first time you had coffee? If you didn't spit it out right away, which I think I did the first time I tried it, you, uh, you had to train yourself. It required patience and work to appreciate this wonderful, amazing drink that we know is coffee. It takes time to appreciate the complexity and the layers of flavor and enjoyment. You can spend your whole life learning about coffee or cheese or wine or chocolate. And not only do the best things that we taste require some effort on our part, but the highest forms of art, music, literature aren't easily, they are easily enjoyed without some education on our part. Opera, I've been told, is an acquired taste. <laughs> it's not a taste that I have acquired. I have not acquired a taste for opera, but I know that if I am ever going to appreciate it, then I'm going to have to do some work. I'm going to have to want 
to like it. I'm going to have to invest myself in it and study it. Uh, jazz and poetry and films without explosions or films without superheroes or films without transformers all require some ability on the part of the audience to receive and process and think critically about the work. These are not, these are not things that just come to us simply. There are other things, however, that ask very little of us. Everyone likes an Oreo the first time you taste it. It didn't take time to, to appreciate the complexity of the Oreo or the McDonald's cheeseburger or a Twinkie or a Coca-Cola or a Disney movie or pop music. What these things have in common is that they're just easily received, easily accessible. Many of them are sweet. They're not bitter. They're not sour. They're not spicy. They're not complex. So if you want to make something that everybody will like, or most people will like, make it sweet. Don't make it too complex. Don't require any participation or involvement or patience on the part of the consumer. If you want to make something and offer something that everybody gets right away and enjoys immediately, make it so that no maturity is required to experience everything that it has to offer, right? When you, when you take an Oreo and you eat it, You've got, you've got it all, right? I mean, there's nothing more to experience, though there is a glory to the Oreo, don't get me wrong. Sweet, simple, broad things have their place. But I think we would agree that, that complex things are worth our time. God gives us things through his creation that require us to grow and expand and mature. Now, I know you appreciate things that you think, you know, nobody, nobody loves this thing that I love. You enjoy certain things that not everybody appreciates. And you know when you taste that thing or listen to that piece of music or read that poem that nobody else understands the way you do or watch that film that, that nobody likes the way you do, you wish you could share it with the world and you can't understand why nobody quite appreciates it the way that you do. How can anyone not like this? This is the best thing in the world. If you don't like this, your taste buds are malformed. You need to go to a doctor because this is so beautiful and this is so, this is so good. And it kind of hurts your feelings when people don't appreciate the things that you appreciate the way that you appreciate them. Now, not only is this true of drink and food and film and poetry and music, we have similar experiences when we try to relate to people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many attractive, consistent, helpful, beautiful things about the Christian faith that we have all given our lives to Jesus. We say, there is nobody I would rather have in charge of my life, my body, my soul, my eternity than Jesus. He has it all. I'm pushing everything to the middle of the table and giving it all to him because it is so lovely and so attractive. That is how much I trust him. But why doesn't everybody see the same beauty? Why doesn't, why doesn't the Lord Jesus grip everybody the way he has gripped us in, in, in the way that we experience and love him? Why don't they see the comfort and help of the Christian faith? What's, what's wrong with them? What's going on there? How is it that we have acquired a taste for the truth of the Christian faith? How is it that we have acquired a taste for wisdom and yet there are so many who hate the thing that we love? They despise it, they ridicule the very things that we cherish. What's going on? What's the problem there? Well, in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul works out an answer to that question. The difference is this, the only reason that you 
and I appreciate God's word is that we have been given a taste for it. We have been granted by God's Holy Spirit a taste for God's word and his truth. We have received the revelation of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit has opened us up to see the things of God as beautiful and desirable and lovely. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because our taste buds are more refined. It's not because we have a higher palate or a, or a higher sense of culture. That's not why. The reason we listen to God is because he has opened our ears. To those whose eyes are closed and whose ears are closed, the truth to them sounds foolish. It sounds like babbling nonsense. And until their ears are opened by the Holy Spirit, their minds are tuned out to the truth. They aren't going to get it with their own wisdom, and it all sounds repulsive to them. Well, that's the point that Paul labored to make in the last section that we studied. And, and if you hear me repeating myself Sunday to Sunday, it's because in this letter, Paul is giving us a foundation and then, and then taking one more step up and building on that and giving us a little bit more and then building on that and, and giving us another step. And so uh, last week in the section we studied, we saw that the gospel is not a product of human wisdom. The wisdom of men will not by itself produce saving faith. In fact, for the unbelieving Jew and the unbelieving Greek, he says the cross is foolishness. It's, it's weakness. It's worthlessness to them. And God designed it that way. The cross is designed to purposely trip up and undermine human wisdom in such a way that human wisdom is no longer reliable. It, human wisdom is exposed as being empty and bankrupt. The cross strips us of our pride in our own understanding, our reliance on our ability to figure things out for ourselves. And it reveals our hopeless condition. The cross reveals our insufficiency apart from the Spirit who enables us to understand the gospel. So this worldly wisdom of the philosophers and thinkers and statesmen and orators that the Corinthian Christians were, were just so attracted to, they were so enamored by these things, these displays of worldly wisdom in the Greek world. Paul labors to show them that that wisdom that you are so attracted to, that you are so consumed with, openly opposes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that will lead you to hell. It won't give you life. It will lead you to death and everlasting destruction. So for the biggest portion of chapter one and for the first five verses of chapter two, we read Paul's condemnation of the wisdom of the world. It's important that when we read that phrase, worldly wisdom, that we think of it in the context that Paul is speaking of it. Don't think simply that the wisdom of the world is just something that was talked about in the Greek philosophers' forums, or that the wisdom of the world is only found in the philosophy departments of state universities. Yes, secular academics teach worldly wisdom, and very often they are openly opposed to Jesus. But for every one of those, for every, for, for every tweed-clad atheist in a philosophy department who works to undermine trust in Jesus, there are thousands of ordinary people whose own perspectives and personal philosophies are just as godless and just as destructive as the guy at the, uni as the, guy at the university. The, the kind of wisdom of, of men that Paul condemns is not only found by the academics, 
uh, among the academics, among the various seats of power, but it's trickled down from there into the culture and it is everywhere. It's, it's in the good old common sense folk wisdom that you hear from your friends and coworkers. That worldly wisdom that, that is opposed to the gospel is, is in the advice you get in business books. It's, it's in the instruction of self-help gurus. It's on talk radio. It's in the doctor's office. It's, it's in the advice that another mother gives you at the soccer park. The wisdom of the world is found everywhere where the cross is ignored or marginalized. And how do we know it? How do we sense it? How do we smell it? Well, it's 100% self-serving, self-protecting, self-preserving, self-promoting. 100% therefore set in opposition to the cross. And I've worked, I've, I've tried to think, how, how can I summarize? How can I define this in, in a way that we can, we can recognize it? And, and this is one of the thoughts um, that, here's one attempt, and it's this acknowledgement that we live with and under institutions whose mission is to promote anything but what God has given us, anything but what God has said. You see, what God has designed, for example, is a family with a man and a woman together in the bonds of matrimony, raising children faithfully under the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That, that's what God designed. That's what God gave us. That's the institution he gave us of the family. We live with and under institutions that are not only opposed to God's design for the family, but will promote and establish and placard and give you everything but that. Everything but that is what we are after. Everything but what God has given. You can do anything you want, just not that, because that is hateful, bigoted, backwards, antiquated. God is creator and Jesus is king. Those are truths embedded in creation and, and, in, our, and, and in, in our very uh, uh, nature as, as uh, God's image bearers. That is the truth. God is creator of everything and Jesus is king over everything. But the, the message that is promoted and placarded constantly by the institutions that we live with and under is, well, we'll believe anything but that. Anything, anything goes but that. And the church has imbibed it to the point that we uh, just filter it through and we, we twist and we tangle and we, we, we uh, malign and mangle scripture and meld it together with this worldly wisdom. And it comes out in all these different ways. And if you're, if you're just the least bit biblically literate and you listen to most Christians speak, you think, where did you get that? What, what are you saying? What are you talking about? What, what are you singing? That's not in the Bible. What are, what are you doing? It's because this worldly wisdom that, that Paul is cautioning and warning us against is, is so prevalent and so pervasive and so invasive. Well, all, after all that Paul does to establish the powerlessness and the, um, the hopelessness of worldly wisdom, we need to understand that he isn't against wisdom. If you were just to close uh, 1 Corinthians after verse 5, which says, 
He says that your faith should be, uh, I'm sorry, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If we were just to stop reading there, we might think that Paul is coming across as some kind of intellectual. We don't really, we're not concerned with wisdom. We're concerned with something else called the power of God, which may be more subjective or something. But he turns the corner right at the beginning of this next section that we just read a minute ago. So let's walk through it together. He's not opposed to wisdom. He says in verse 6, however, we speak wisdom. We aren't anti-wisdom. What we're doing is putting the center of wisdom somewhere outside of the received respectable sources of wisdom in the world. The Greeks think we're speaking nonsense but we're actually transcending their logic. We're transcending their sense. This, this makes more logical sense than anything they've ever grappled with. He continues, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. The ones who are mature are the ones whose palates have been matured, who have grown up in Christ and have acquired a taste for real wisdom, not the self-absorbed uh, wisdom of the Greeks. We speak a wisdom that doesn't look like anything else the world is offering right now. But we remember that what they pass off as wisdom, he says, is coming to nothing. It's passing away. You've heard me say it so many times. I want to write it on your minds when you grieve and despair over the wickedness in the world that it's all ending. There is no future in evil. Wickedness has no future. Don't invest in it. It's going away. Their wisdom is folly, and it has clouded their minds in such a way so that when they hear the wisdom of God, it sounds mysterious. It sounds distant, he says in verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God, which God ordained before the ages for our glory. It's, it's hidden. It's being revealed by God's Holy Spirit, but it's not, it's not something brand new. Even before time began, God was concerned for our salvation, and he planned this order of events that would bring us into his glory. Verse 8, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul assures them that the rulers of this age are so far removed from the light, they're so far in the dark, that when God himself walked among them, revealing true wisdom, they failed to grasp who he was and what he was doing, and they, they crucified him. They didn't know what they were doing, Paul says, when they crucified Jesus. Now, that doesn't absolve them of any guilt. They could have paid attention. They didn't. And he says, had they known, they wouldn't have done it. They were ignorant of the full weight of their actions. They were just stumbling around in the darkness. They were like a toddler in a high chair, and you're grilling for the family, and you've made these bacon-wrapped, perfectly seasoned, medium-rare fillets, steak fillets, and you put that, that perfect, great, wonderful, juicy steak on the toddler's tray on his high chair, and he's not going to be impressed. He's not going to enjoy that. He will likely push it away and whine. And it's not because, oh, he just hates great steak. That's not what it is. It's not because he has weighed it and properly considered it and found it wanting. Dad, you, you season this poorly. You know, it, that's not what he's thinking. It's because his palate is only trained for chicken nuggets and macaroni. 
He has no taste for anything better. And that's how the rulers of this age responded to Jesus. They had no appetite for him. They had no attraction to him. They had no means, no ability to receive what he was saying. And so they didn't listen. It wasn't because, oh, they had listened to his arguments and Jesus just didn't stack up to some incredibly airtight, timeless standard of wisdom. That was not it at all. It was that they did not have the taste buds to receive what he was feeding them. So in verse 9, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. Uh, Verse 9 is often pulled out of this context of 1 Corinthians or even of Jeremiah where it originally uh, came from. It's pulled out and it's put on posters and calendars and, and other things. It's, it, and it's, it, we assume that what he's speaking about when he says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We assume that what that's talking about is things that are waiting for us in heaven, things that we can't imagine. Now, sure, our imaginations are limited when it comes to all the wonderful things God has prepared for us in eternity, but that's not the first reading. That's not the first understanding. That's not the primary context of this section. What are the wonderful things that eye hasn't seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man? What is he talking about? It's those things that God reveals to us through his spirit that don't get revealed any other way. They only come through God's spirit. We don't acquire this spiritual wisdom, this saving faith, this true knowledge of understanding ourselves and understanding God. We don't get all that by our own understanding, by our own skills of logic and wisdom. It's only by the Holy Spirit that man comes to have an understanding of himself, of God, of life, and the gospel. Nobody's figured out a way to learn this apart from the Holy Spirit. And yet with the Spirit, he says, we have access to all the things that would have been incomprehensible, unattainable to us before, even the deep things of God. There is nothing beyond the Spirit's knowing or the Spirit's grasp. The Spirit penetrates all things. He hears all things. He sees all things. There's nothing hidden from the Spirit. And it's the Spirit who reveals God's wisdom to us. God has revealed these things to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. He has searched them out and He has given them to us. Verse 11, For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Paul gives us a little picture here. He says, nobody can tell what's going on in anybody else's head. I know I've tried. You've tried. You don't know what's going on in somebody's head. I don't know what you're thinking all the time. I don't know what your motives are. I don't know what you're planning to do next. Chess would be really boring if we could read each other's minds, right? You know, games would be really boring. We can't know and we can't read each other's minds and we can't see inside each other's heads. But if you want to know a man, Paul says, really know him and you have to know his spirit. His spirit isn't going to lie. Now, now it's about impossible to know someone else this way. But in the same way, he says, God is known by his spirit and his spirit has been extended in such a way that we're invited to know God through his spirit. I can't know your spirit but I have been given God's spirit and I can know God from the inside. I can know God from 
his spirit in a, in a way that I can't even know another man. Verse 12, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The spirit of the world he refers to, it might very well be Satan uh, directly. It might be a direct reference to Satan or maybe a, a reference to the satanic wisdom of the world. And he says, you haven't been given that spirit. That's not what has been granted you. We who belong to Jesus have received the spirit from God. And what that tells us is that you and I can be confident that we have real knowledge. God has freely given to us all that we need to know. Don't think that God is holding something out. He's holding something back. He's reserving something. That, that he's given us this word. He's given us this book, but has left all kinds of other things out. I knew when I was a young uh, college student and around other young Christians who had never read the Bible cover to cover, all wanted to read the Apocrypha cover to cover or they all wanted to read the Gnostic Gospels, as if, as if God was hiding something, as if we have other paths to wisdom, that maybe God didn't tell us everything we needed to know here. Who else said something like that? Didn't the serpent say something like that in the garden to Eve? God, God left things out. God, God really didn't give you everything you needed to know, Eve. So, so we pursue these other strange and, and discounted long ago sources of, of information. We pursue those and we ignore the thing that he gave us. It's very clear uh, that, that it is his and what he wants us to know. God has spoke crystal clearly on all the things we need to know. Now, there's still some mystery. There's some stuff we need to work through. There are things that we have to figure out. No denying that. But he hasn't deliberately deluded us with some mystical, allegorical fairy tale so that we have to be you know, kind of embarrassed and kind of hang our head when we face geologists and biologists and psychologists and philosophers. And we have to start backpedaling in the face of this immense wall of worldly logic and science. That, that's not the position he has put us in. What the Spirit has revealed to us in His Word is always true. It is always consistent. It is always flawless and therefore will never lead you astray. Does God's Word give us, give us tips on plumbing? No. Does it, does it tell us how to build a house? How to split an atom? No. But what it does speak on, it is absolutely 100% reliable and therefore it is our authority and you can bet your life on it without doubt. And that is what has been given to us freely by God. He hasn't held anything back that we need to know for life and godliness. Verse 13, these things we also speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That last little phrase, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, is a little confusing in the New King James and the translation. And in fact, the language uh, is a little tough to translate there. Um, it's one of those things that we get these things where, we, yeah, there are things we've got to work through and understand. But it's, w once we get it, we get it. And one translation of that is uh, that we're combining spiritual things with spiritual words. And so, if, if we read, read it that way, it, it isn't enough that we have these things revealed to us by the Spirit, but in turn, we, we, we repeat those things, we speak the things that the Spirit has taught us to speak 
without taint of human wisdom, and not only saying words that have been inspired by the Spirit, but then to live and to act as Spirit-filled men and women, to back up our spiritual speech with spiritual deeds, so that God has not only delivered us knowledge, but has delivered us a way of life, a way of living. The Spirit's presence and His work of revelation is what makes all the difference. Without Him, people lack discernment. They have no compass. They don't know up from down, he says in verse 14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Everybody, apart from God's Holy Spirit, recoils from the truth. They are offended by the Bible, and they're disgusted by the cross, apart from the Spirit. Apart from God's Holy Spirit opening our eyes and ears, every one of us who heard the gospel to submit to a crucified Messiah, apart from the Spirit, we would laugh and say, that's the most foolish thing we've ever heard. Well, let's try to get into their minds a little bit. And that's what Paul gives us a window into. Why do they think it's so foolish? When the natural man, when the unbelieving man calls the gospel foolish, he says that because the gospel demands that he gives up something he loves. We call advice foolish when it asks us to exchange something of high value for something of low value. So, for example, if you offer me five bucks to jump out of an airplane without a parachute, I'll say that's foolish because I value my life more than I value five bucks. And once I hit the ground, I can't even use the five bucks. You're asking me to buy high and sell low. That's a foolish exchange. If you advise me to sell my house and put the money in some crackpot investment scheme, that's not attractive to me. I don't have any interest because I don't want to trade something valuable for something worthless or dangerous. So, So get into the mind of the unbeliever. When a natural man is advised to follow a crucified Messiah, he's going to say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's foolish because I value my own wisdom, my own system, my self-reliance and my self-exaltation. And I don't want to exchange all of that for something that I perceive to be of lesser value. The natural man loves living with the idea that he's the master of his own fate and the captain of his soul. And he loves his sense of self-worth that he achieves through his exercise of will or intelligence or skill or talent or strength. And the call of the gospel is asking him to jump out of this, this, uh, this craft of security, this boat of security that he is resting in, the call of the gospel is asking him to jump out of that and in all of the things that he hopes in, in the hope that Jesus is going to catch him when he jumps out. That's the foolishness of the gospel. And for many, it's just too great a cost. I can't imagine giving up everything for Jesus. And I've been told that. I've, 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 through the years, shared the gospel with men who are wildly successful in business, in life, have started companies, have hired people, put people to work. And when confronted with the gospel, they can't imagine giving up their whole system of philosophy and handing all that over to Jesus. That is absolutely, that's just too big of a, that's too big of a chance. It's too great of a cost. And so he can't accept that that glory in Christ and submitting to the Lord Jesus is better than what he has now. And therefore, the entire proposition is absolutely foolish to him until he's brought by the Spirit to understand that to not take that leap is actually the bigger risk. 
to not jump out of your security into the arms of Jesus is actually the bigger risk. And the only thing that will ever change that is the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul circles back around to believers, verse 15. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. In contrast to the unbeliever, in contrast to the natural man, the spiritual man has been given the capacity to form right thoughts. We can think critically about the world around us. We have the ability to make sound judgments. While the natural man doesn't understand it in the same way, the natural man can't make any sense of what the spiritual man is all about. And so he says the spiritual man isn't rightly judged by the natural man. What does he mean by that? Well, how often have you been in a situation where you're your honest, righteous, humble attempt to do the right thing was misinterpreted by an unbeliever or someone operating with worldly wisdom. You see, the reason that they malign your good works is because they think that you think like they do. Someone who accuses you of being a liar all the time is probably really good at lying. Somebody who accuses you of stealing falsely is probably really good at stealing. And they're thinking, oh, you're acting like I do. You're thinking like I think. They, they think you must be out for yourself, that you're only interested in self-promotion. You couldn't possibly have a higher motive or serve a higher authority. And so Paul lets the Corinthians know, you need to get used to that kind of self, uh, uh, false accusation. You need to get used to being maligned and misunderstood because the natural man will not understand you. He will always misinterpret your motivations. Since he can't understand spiritual things, how can he understand spiritual people? The last section of this, uh, I'm sorry, last verse of this section, we'll stop here, is an old rhetorical question that Paul now has an answer to. So this is from Isaiah that Paul's quoting. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, so Isaiah asked, Who has known the mind of the Lord? I mean, no, we, God is mysterious. He's at arm's length from us. We have to go through all these layers of priesthood to, to get to him, layers of sacrifice. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, Paul answers, well, now God has drawn near to us in the person of Jesus. And now we have been given the spirit who knows God inside out. And so who has known the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Guess what? We do. We have the mind of Christ. The spiritual man no longer sees things from the viewpoint of worldly wisdom. We see them now from the viewpoint of Jesus. We can interpret the world through the mind of Christ. Now, what does all this mean? What does it mean for the first century Corinthian Christian? What does it mean for us? Remember from the very beginning, Paul has been at pains to extract the Corinthian believers from their culture's way of living and thinking. He's been at work to tear down their idols of philosophy and respectability and to replace those idols with the foolishness of the cross. He's, he's working to replace it with the gospel because as we go through this book, we're going to see a lot of problems. We're going to see a lot of disgusting stuff going on. We're going to see a lot of worrisome, really bad things. And it all has its foundation in the worldly wisdom that they're so enamored with. They have begun with worldly wisdom and they have followed it all the way to the end. And now they have all this terrible stuff going on in their church. All their problems trace back to the fact that they are immersed in and bewitched by worldly wisdom. 
And so he's trying to tune them to a new way of thinking and a new way of living that's utterly foreign to them and foreign to the culture around them. And he says, that's going to make you oddballs in the world. That's going to make you a bunch of weirdos from the perspective of your neighbors. And he knows that as soon as the newness wears off and as soon as the excitement of being a Christian wears off, they're going to really feel the pressure to go back to the old way of thinking and the old way of living. The pull of respectability is just too great. The desire to get invited to all the right dinner parties and to be in the good graces of all the most well-connected people and to have all the right social credentials, that pull is just too strong. So here, in order to help them uh, pull out of that world, that world that's under judgment, that world that's bound for destruction, he points out to them that when it comes down to who is wise and who is not, who do you think it is? Who is wise and who is not? The one who has the mind of Plato or the one who has the mind of Christ? Who is really the mature one? You see, he understands it. He gets it. You, my beloved brethren, are made to feel as if you are immature children who don't know what you're doing. But who really is the grown-up here? Who has acquired a taste for real wisdom? And who is pushing it off his high chair? Who? So don't be dismayed, Paul says. My children, my brethren, my sisters, don't be dismayed. Don't forsake Jesus over this. Think of how your life and your world came together and made sense for the first time when the Spirit revealed the gospel to you. Remember how chaotic your lives were before. Why would you want to throw all that away for the respectability and the honor and the faint praise of those people who are imbibing the world's wisdom? And so this message is the same for us today. We live in a culture where the truth of the Christian faith is mocked every day. And if you do not see it, you're not paying attention. You are not paying attention if every time you watch the news and read the paper and look at the internet and watch a television show and listen to popular music, you, if you do not see that your faith is being mocked and ridiculed by just about everything in the culture, you're not paying attention. You're absolutely not watching. You're just letting it go in one ear and out the other. Your Faith is being ridiculed by everything around you every day. And the people who are most respected by the world scoff at the claims of Jesus. They mock and they ridicule the foolishness and the weakness of the cross. And as a result, you and I are always tempted to think that our perspectives are inferior that we're immature, that we're not, maybe we're not even really spiritual. Maybe we're not compassionate for believing what God says. Maybe we're the people who need to change. Maybe we're the people who are warped. You're tempted. I know you are, but you have to avoid that trap. Brothers and sisters, children, stop desiring the respect and the accolades and the favor of people who ridicule Jesus. Stop desiring the honor of people who hate Jesus. When will we stop thinking that we aren't smart until they tell us we're smart? When will we stop judging all things by their fallen, evil, deformed, warped, judged criteria? When will we stop listening to their wisdom over the wisdom revealed to us by the Spirit that gives us the mind of Christ? Brothers and sisters, we need to extract ourselves and our children from the spirit of the day, just like the Corinthian Christians did, and resist the temptation to bow to the idols of our generation. In Rome, you had the best government that the world had ever put together. 
And in first century Pharisaism, you had the most rigorous, tight-shoed, self-disciplined religion that the world had ever seen. You had the best worldly government and the best worldly religion, and they both conspired together to crucify the Son of God. That's, a, that's what human wisdom gets us. There's no reason to be attracted to it or to be enthralled by it or to think that you're the dummy when they speak. You think, oh, I'm, I'm the rube. I, I'm, I'm the loser here. Paul's words are so helpful to us when we have various interactions with unbelievers. I, I know you've had interactions and conversations with people who don't get it, who are so hostile to your faith. You know how good it is. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And you think, why can't they see it? Why can't they taste it? Why don't they get it? What this passage arms us with is the sense that if they haven't gotten it, it doesn't always mean that we haven't done a good job of explaining it. Now, we could do a lot of work in getting really good at explaining the gospel, and we must. But it doesn't always mean if someone doesn't believe that we haven't done a great job of explaining it or that we haven't done a good enough job of making the body of Christ attractive or that we have fumbled something. And so now because of us, they are lost forever because we didn't do or say the right thing. No, unbelief is still a mystery. God has his own purposes in how and when he reveals himself to men. He uses our most meager efforts to do extraordinary things. Men are still required to submit themselves to the Spirit so he can open their eyes and, and reveal himself. But know and trust this, that unless and until they acquire the taste for God's wisdom, and they get that by the, by the gift of God's Holy Spirit, until then, it's going to remain folly to them. The bitter and the complex things of God's Word are just too much for them because they have immature palates. If we forget what Paul says here and we start looking for new ways to make the gospel more acceptable, more palatable to the unbelieving world, if, if we want to give up some stuff just so we can be, I don't know, more woke, more, more, more into the justice thing, if we, if we want to give things up and we say, oh, we're just, you know, we got, we got to loosen up or we're never going to be attractive. If, if, we, if we load up the gospel with sprinkles and powdered sugar, we, if we dumb it down and take out all the good parts, like the resurrection or the authority of Scripture, uh, we, we think maybe that'll attract somebody. The problem is, is it still doesn't work. It doesn't convince anybody of anything. And, and even if we do convert them to that, then we haven't converted them to faith and trust in Jesus. We've converted them to something very different from the Orthodox Christian faith. So be confident. Be confident when it comes to God's truth. Don't apologize for anything that God says. Don't apologize for anything. Don't give up anything that God says. Be bold and consistent with your message and pray, pray, pray that God, by His Holy Spirit, opens their eyes and gives them His Spirit so that they can understand the things that you say. Combining spiritual things with spiritual words. It's not just words, it's deeds. And God will open their eyes in His time. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this encouragement from your apostle, and we pray that you would continue to work this into us and extract us more and more from the world that we live in. That is uh, the, the world of unbelief. We don't pray that you would take us out of creation. You've got work for us to do, but I'm praying that you would extract us from the world that is set in opposition to you and to your son, Jesus. And so ignite in us a love for Jesus that, that out 
shines all other attractions, all other temptations that would lead us into rebellion and hatred and spite for you. Father, preserve us and our children, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.